15. So if you have your Bible, hope you do, please turn to Matthew chapter 15. And for those of you at home, I'm going to try to speak into the microphone better this week. I know last week it was cutting out, so that's my fault. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he did not honor his father. So, for the sake of tradition, you have made void the word of God. Hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your spirit would speak to us through your word. We know that if we come to your word on our own, not empowered, by the Spirit, to hear you, and this is a fruitless task. And we're wasting our time. So, Lord, speak to us through your Spirit. Give us understanding through your Spirit. Change us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here are the Pharisees again, and they're back with what has become kind of a, f- a familiar attack against Jesus. Essentially, kind of the, the big picture of what all these attacks are about is that he wasn't fitting the mold of what they assumed he, as Messiah, would be like. And what we see here in, in today's battle in this text, is a battle between two ways of reading Scripture. The first, the way of the Pharisees, says we are to understand God's Word according to how we want to interpret it. The second, the way of Christ, says we're to understand God's Word for what it says. Now, I want to be fair as we begin to, to examine these two positions, the scribes and Pharisees aren't intentionally trying to be evil, okay? That's not their goal. They believed and they taught Judaism, which is their religion, according to how they were taught it. And many of us do that. We believe and teach the things that we're taught. Phariseeism, you see, you're going to have to understand what's, what's going on here. It's a school of thought within Judaism. It's a, it's a teaching You might have also heard of the Sadducees and the Essenes. Those are like, roughly like denominations within Judaism. Pharisaism was 
was the most dominant of these, the most popular, the most culturally acceptable form of Judaism at that time. The traditions of the Pharisees had been formed through years and years and years, hundreds of years of biblical tradition and teaching and case law, and you'll see what I mean by that in a minute, that was just handed down to them. These traditions later, and we're talking 400 AD, so 400 years after the time of Jesus, after the time he walked the earth, all of these Pharisaical traditions would be compiled and written down in document form. And they were called Midrash. And that collection of teachings had commentaries on it, and that, the commentaries on that collection of teaching is known as the Talmud. You might have heard of these things before. Today, Orthodox Jews from this tradition study these teachings. And they've expanded on these teachings and added to these teachings. But that is what makes Judaism Judaism for the people who are in that Pharisaical tradition. So let me give you an example of something that you'd find in one of these various books of the Midrash. Uh, you, you might find something having to do with Sabbath keeping. You might have, find something having to do with cleanness or cleanliness or divorce or food preparation or purchasing land or selling land or owning a business. All of these are issues that are addressed in the Old Testament, but they need further clarification in, in specific cases. So, so an example of one specific case, uh, let, let's think about keeping the Sabbath holy. So in the Midrash, there's an entire book about Sabbath keeping. And, and within that teaching, they, they understand that Jews are supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's, it's really important. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of promises in the Old Testament about the blessings that come from keeping the Sabbath holy and the curses that come from not keeping it holy. So, so they're about keeping the Sabbath holy. They don't want to break Sabbath. The problem, though, is when you read the Old Testament, there's only a few examples of what it looks like to keep the Sabbath holy. So the Pharisees, looking to be obedient to Scripture, they took one of these examples from the Old Testament of Sabbath keeping, and they, they looked at the book of Exodus when Israel is is wandering in the wilderness. And Moses had commanded them regarding Sabbath keeping that they aren't supposed to leave their houses on the Sabbath. So Midrash case law then says, well, we recognize that particular instruction was specifically for Israel wandering in the wilderness. We now believe you can go outside your house, but you can only walk. Because they want to honor that tradition. You can only walk, and you, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath, because you can't work on the Sabbath, and carrying a burden is a type of work. So it's, it's forbidden. And so then, so that, that's kind of the general uh, principle, and then they ask this hypothetical question. This is where case law comes in. Well, what if I want to give someone food who is poor and hungry on the Sabbath day? Since I can't go out of my house carrying food, because that would be carrying a burden. But I am supposed to care for the poor, because that's commanded. What do I do? And that's a good question, isn't it? Like if, if, you see, see where they're coming from here? Well, case law says, well, if the person in need comes to your house and reaches inside your door, 
for the, the doorway, and then you place the basket of food in their hand, that's legal, that's okay. So long as neither of you crosses the threshold of the door with your feet. Alternatively, you could reach your hand out the door with the basket in your hand, again, so long as your feet don't cross the threshold. If either of you has anything in your hand, a burden, and your feet cross the threshold, then that person is guilty of carrying a burden on the Sabbath. The Sabbath has not been kept holy, and now we're in serious trouble. You see how this works? It seems nitpicky, doesn't it? It seems a little bit legalistic. And it leads, you can imagine, when you have all these hypothetical questions and real-life questions, it leads to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new laws and interpretations of those laws. But remember, all of that work that they're doing is meant to keep one from breaking the original law. After all, violating the Sabbath, according to God's law, is a crime punishable by death. Kind of seems legalistic to us, but we ought not throw out this way of reasoning altogether because we do it too. They aren't being totally crazy here. Right? We can all admit that there are some things that Scripture doesn't explicitly address. And at the same time, we as Christians, we want to honor God's commands. So, so think about this question. Can, can a Christian couple who's dating kiss? Can they kiss on the lips? Well, for how long? Right? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't even mention dating at all. So, so should Christians even date? Or, or let's take marijuana, for instance. There's nothing in the Bible about the use of marijuana. So what do we do with that? Should we use it? Should we avoid it? It's legal. So we, we, what we do, what we've learned to do as Christians, is take what principles that the Bible does address, and then we work our way out from there. This is what we call Christian ethics. And now if you're totally distracted and you're wondering, what does our pastor believe about marijuana? Tune in on Wednesday, okay? This is a shameless plug for our, for our pastor's Q&A. We'll talk about guns and ganja on, on, on Wednesday, and I'll address it then. But for now, let's focus on the text, okay? Let's focus on the text. The Pharisees are a school of thought that takes into consideration hundreds and hundreds of years of these interpretations of the Old Testament and the case laws having to do with those interpretations. And that kind of gives you a little bit better understanding of what's going on here. And that's what's happening when the Pharisees come to Jesus here in Matthew. So let's get down to our text where we are. Remember, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples were in Gennesaret, and they're working really hard, and they're healing all these people all day long, and recognize that many of the people coming to Jesus that day would have been unclean, according to Old Testament law. And bystanders, anybody watching, would have noticed that Jesus and his disciples did not break away from those unclean people to be made clean. They didn't go to the synagogue. They didn't go to the priest. They didn't go through the ceremonial hand washing that would have been necessary according to the Pharisaical tradition in order to be made clean. 
after interacting with all these needy people. And what's worse, for anybody watching, is they would have seen Jesus and the disciples working with those unclean people, not be made ceremonially clean, ceremonially clean, and then eat dinner. So that means, according to the traditions, that their unclean hands defiled their food, and then they ingested their, what is now unclean food, and now they have become unclean. And according to the traditions that have accumulated within the school of the Pharisees, or what we could say, according to Pharisaism, what the disciples and Jesus are doing is something that is simply not done. We don't do that. Not people, people that are claiming to be holy men or teachers of the law, that's not something they do. They follow the traditions. They, they go through the ceremonial cleanliness rituals in order to be, to be made clean. And, and you should recognize this has nothing to do with hygiene, okay? We, we hear wash your hands and we think, yeah, wash your hands because you don't want to get a virus. They, they didn't study bacteriology. They had no virology in the first century. This has nothing to do with hygiene, and it has everything to do with holiness and purity before God. So, so priests and, and holy men are clean and pure people who can be in the presence of God only as long as they are made ceremonially clean first. Hence, the hand washing. But Jesus, he hasn't been teaching these traditions to his disciples. He's been, according to the Pharisees, a really bad example of a good Pharisee. And the word has made its way all the way. Remember, they're in the northern part of the territory. The, the rumors about Jesus' non-practice of Phariseeism have, have made it all the way down to Jerusalem. The word about how dangerous this new rabbi is has made its way into the ivory towers. They know this man is dangerous. They know he's a rabbi. He, he's teaching. Everybody knows that he's some sort of special rabbi. But he's not teaching like the rest of the Pharisees are. He's not teaching according to the, the convention. He works on the Sabbath. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. He touches unclean people, and then he does nothing to make himself clean after he's with them. So as far as the Pharisees can tell, according to their understanding, he's violating the law of God as they understand it. And he's teaching others to do the same. In such a crisis, what he's doing is such a crisis that they send this contingency from Jerusalem in order to confront the issue. The local, the local Pharisees haven't done the job. So the, the big dogs from Jerusalem have to come up. So when we get to this question in verse 2, I hope you still have your Bibles open. In verse 2, when the Pharisees ask this question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You see that the Pharisees are really asking, in a, in a thinly veiled way, why aren't you teaching your disciples to follow our traditions. Or more bluntly, 
why aren't you like us? What's wrong with you, Jesus? See, the Pharisees expected Messiah to be like them. And Jesus isn't like them. Now, there's a lot we can make of this issue, isn't there? And we talked about this before. For those of you that have been following through our study of Matthew from the beginning, 56 sermons ago, you've seen this comparison between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we've, we've talked about the need to see Christ as he is and not as we expect him to be, not as we want him to be. We ought not to form Christ in our own image, but rather let the Spirit conform us to Christ. And this is certainly a very clear application from the Pharisees' response to Jesus. It always is, a, is an application that we need to make to ourselves, of ourselves, when we are looking at how the Pharisees interact with Jesus. Are we forming Jesus in our own image, or are we allowing ourselves to be conformed to Christ? But I want to broaden this out a little bit. In the same way that the Jews are accusing Jesus, another Jew, of not being Jewish enough for them because he's different from them, sometimes we Christians can do this to other Christians. We do this for any number of reasons. Whether it's, it's insecurity, or, or we're just pridefully prejudiced against other people who are different than us, or, or we haven't really studied the differences between the theological positions, we haven't bothered to take the time to open up the Bible and read it ourselves. Certainly, though, we have those cases where, where we're just being basically ignorant, but there are cases where we disagree with a Christian brother or sister because they're actually in grave error, and we need to lovingly correct them. But, but I want us to see here that we need to be extremely, extremely careful that we not be so, so stubbornly confident in our own opinion that we can't hear from others. And I say that because this sense of, of stubborn self-assurance is the error that kept the Pharisees from being able to listen to Jesus. And that error could be keeping you from growing in Jesus. So my only takeaway for you is to be humble. Be humble about your own understanding of the faith. Be teachable. Be correctable. And don't miss Christ himself for the sake of your pride in thinking that somehow you have arrived. So let's move on now to Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Look at verse 3. Jesus recognizes that the Pharisees' concern isn't really about hand-washing. The question is really about the rejection, his rejection of the Pharisaical tradition. And so Jesus answers the question beneath the question with a question of his own. Look at verse 3. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See, they're asking why Jesus isn't teaching Pharisees, Pharisaism when he teaches the law. And Jesus is answering 
by saying, because Pharisaism is not in keeping with the law. Pharisaism, in fact, breaks God's commandments. And to prove his point, Jesus points to this example from their Pharisaical tradition. God's law tells us to honor our father and mother. Jesus knew that. The Pharisees knew that. We know that. It's not like a hidden law. It's not like a conclusion that we have drawn or deduced from some other rules. It's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. It's the only commandment, Paul says, that comes with a promise. And not only is it given to us in the Ten Commandments, it's repeated several times in the New Testament. It's such an important law, Jesus reminds the Pharisees, that the penalty for dishonoring your father or mother, the penalty for, for saying something evil against your parents, and Jesus quotes Exodus 21:17 here. The penalty is death. He says, "For whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death." So, so he tells, he kind of sets the stage here by giving the Pharisees something that that he knows they agree with. And then he points to their tradition, their ism. The Pharisaical tradition has made a way around this very important law. The tradition of the elders, as they call it, has borrowed a biblical principle having to do with things devoted to God. And then they applied this idea to their money. They determined that money that a normal person might might be expected to use to help their aging parents, a Pharisee could say, well, I don't have to use that money to help my parents because I have pledged that money to the temple when I die. And in so doing, what have they done? They've they've rationalized their way out of helping their own parents. Sorry, Mom, I, I can't help you pay rent. I know I have the money in the bank. I know that you know that I have the money in the bank, but that money, that can't go to you. That is pledged to the temple. So you'll have to ask someone less spiritual than me, to help you. And Jesus says, that's, that's not it. That is, that's not honoring your father and mother. That's dishonoring them and breaking God's law, all in the name of the traditions of the elders. See, Jesus' beef with the Pharisees, his correction of them, is not that they seek to keep the law by making new laws. Sometimes we misunderstand that. It's not that they're protecting themselves from disobeying God. Even Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Jesus is a big advocate of going to great lengths to protect yourself from disobeying God. His, His beef with the Pharisees is that they used these measures to excuse disobedience to God. Look at verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He's saying, I I don't teach Phariseeism to my disciples because Phariseeism teaches people to disobey God's word. See what Jesus is doing here? He's completely undermining everything that they've been teaching. 
by saying your way is contrary to God's way. See, the way that Jesus is teaching, he wants us to see, is the right way. And it's not something new. And he's been trying to show us this from the beginning. He's not relaxing God's commandments. He's not abolishing God's commandments. He's fulfilling God's commandments. This takes us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus talked about this. He, he set the prologue for the rest of his ministry by telling us what, true, what he was there for. He says in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And that was the thought because he was doing things in a way different than what the Pharisees were teaching. He's saying, don't think that. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless, or until heaven and earth pass away, and not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Who's he talking about? He's talking to the Pharisees. They're relaxing God's commandments and teaching others to do the same. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus wants us to see, they have the appearance of people who are living in accordance with God's law. They teach the law. They, they, they look to be living a strictly ordered life. But they're not living in accordance with God's true law. They can't. Why? Because Jesus says their hearts are far from God. You can't obey God if your heart isn't totally in love with him. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites, and by that he means they're actors, they're pretenders. It's a sham, it's a show for them. Look at verse 7. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In their whole system, their whole religion is a fraud. It was vanity. It's self-righteousness. It's self-aggrandizing. It's self-flattering. Self-promoting. And Jesus was not about to get his disciples caught up in that. Jesus was teaching us and is teaching us true righteousness. A righteousness that flows out from love for God. That's why we can see what's going on here. This is, this is about the way of Jesus, the way of being made new in Christ by the power of the Spirit, versus the way of the Pharisees, or an attempt at religion powered by the flesh. This is taking God at his word, versus fudging your way around God's word while still trying to maintain the appearance of religiosity. Which way do you follow? That's, that's the only question we can ask here, isn't it, after reading this? Which way do you follow? Which, which of these two ways describes your faith? 
but by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has empowered those of us who have been born again to desire to listen to God and take him at his word and obey his word, no matter what he says. But our flesh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish, our flesh has built into it this wicked ability to pretend. To pretend to follow Jesus while actually going the way of the Pharisees. You have to see. You've got to see. We are no less prone to lip service religion than these men were. We're not somehow more evolved than them. This is the human condition. This is what the flesh does. So the question that you've got to ask this morning is, where am I like this? Where am I like the Pharisees? Not, and I know this is a temptation, not where are the people that came to church with me like the Pharisees? Not where are the people that I have theological disagreements with like the Pharisees? No, where are you like the Pharisees? Where am I? Where are we replacing God's commands with our own rationalizations, our own broadly acceptable standards and traditions, and then then trying to maintain some level of appearing to be Christian because that's the acceptable way to be a Christian, the tradition. Probably the best way for us to diagnose if we're doing this or where we're doing this, rather, is to just look at the Ten Commandments. Josh read those for us today in our Scripture reading, and we don't have time to go through all ten, so I'm just going to hit every other one. One is probably enough, but we're going to go through every other one. We'll start with the first one. And, And as we do this, I want you to just pause and consider, pay attention to your heart here, consider what your heart's response is when you hear these commands. Is it, oh, I want to. I desire to obey that out of love for God because of Christ's work on my behalf? Or, on the other hand, is your response resistance and then some sort of excuse? Some sort of excuse for why you can rationalize your way out of that command. And as soon as you feel yourself making an excuse, stop and write that down or take a a quick note of that, a hard note of that, because that that awareness that you're going to have at that moment is going to be the awareness that should lead us to repentance, okay? So number one, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And if your first thought here is, Look, I don't worship other gods. Let me ask you a few questions. Let's do, use a diagnostic tool here, okay? When you are lying awake at 3 a.m., for whatever reason, what's on your mind? When you're anxious about the future, which I know many of us have been over the last few weeks, several weeks, when you're anxious about the future, what is it that you're worried about? What are you worried about? should expose to you some other God in your life. Ask yourself these questions. When I think about losing blank, I get very angry. Or this one. When I think about gaining 
blank. That makes me really happy. And here, here's the last one. Probably the most revealing question to help us diagnose our idolatry issues. What do you want more than holiness? What do you want more than holiness? If it's anything, it's anything, then you have another God. And so here's that part where you're going to try to make excuses for that other thing, whatever it is. Don't. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, on the surface level, this has to do with our speech, right? Using the name of God in vain. Do you regularly use the phrase, oh my God? Or the Pharisee's favorite substitute, oh my gosh. And then do you make excuses for this? Well, I, gotta, I don't really mean that. It's just a saying. Or on, on a deeper level. Do you do things in the name of Christ or as representing Jesus Christ that Jesus actually told us to avoid? Do, do you use your identity in Christ to browbeat other people? That is using his name in vain for your benefit rather than his glory. It gets harder. Let's look at number five. Honor your father and mother. And all we're going to do here is just go after the same angle that Jesus did. Are there excuses you have for not honoring your father and mother? Do you spiritualize your desire to disobey this command? And if you think this is just an Old Testament command, it's not. This is all over the New Testament, specifically specifically financially providing for your parents. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, and he's talking about our parents there, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's strong language, isn't it? Really strong words. So are you honoring your parents by providing for them? Are you providing for them financially? Are you providing for them emotionally? Are you encouraging them spiritually? If they need to ride to church, are you making sure that they have it? If they need someone to read the Bible to them because they can't see anymore, are you doing that for them? If you are estranged from your parents for whatever reason, whatever reason it is, have you sought reconciliation with them? Even if it's their fault, have you sought to forgive them for wrongs that they may have done or that you perceived that they did when you were younger? Or do you hold a grudge against your parents? Are you trying to teach your parents a lesson? Or are you honoring them? If you have come up in your own mind with some excuse, as spiritual as it may be, for dishonoring your parents, you're following the way of the Pharisees. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now, to address this, we have to address you know, classical adultery or marital infidelity. So do you, do you justify or 
justify or excuse adultery because you're in love with that other person? Do you feel like you deserve better than what you've got? Those are, those are rationalizations with its sin. Adultery, though, Jesus teaches us, goes much deeper than that. This is a heart issue. So even looking at another person who's not your spouse and desiring them, that's adultery. And the Pharisaical response, the way of the Pharisees, what's the response? Well, I'm just looking, right? I didn't do anything. I'm just, I'm just admiring God's creation. Are you spiritualizing your lust? If so, you're following the way of the Pharisees. Number nine, last one. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this law particularly has to do with Israel's justice system. Okay? The legal system was heavily dependent on witnesses, almost entirely dependent on witnesses. Remember, they didn't have fingerprint evidence, they didn't have DNA evidence, they didn't have video surveillance to play in court. The law required two or more witnesses to convict someone of a crime. And that meant if two witnesses conspired together to accuse you of a crime, you could be convicted. And that would be an, a gross perversion of justice. And that's why God commands in the Ten Commandments that this not happen. It would be atrocious for this to happen. It's not something that we have much of a problem with, right? I mean, we're not accusing people in a court of law of having committed crimes. But have you spread rumors? Have you spread unconfirmed rumors about someone that you didn't like and then justified yourself thinking, well, it's probably true based on their character? Or in your mind, do, have you done that because they deserved it? Or you're getting back at them as revenge of some sort? Whenever we violate God's law and make excuses for it, even spiritualized excuses, even in our minds what are good excuses, we're following the way of the Pharisees. And, and we've just examined five of the Ten Commandments. We haven't even begun to look at the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament. This is a really easy trap to fall into. If we're making excuses for our sins or justifying our own sins rather than repenting and seeking forgiveness for our sins, then what are we doing? We're honoring God with just our lips. But our hearts are far from him. A heart that is close to God is one that has been made new in Christ. And you have to understand, a heart that's been made new in Christ has no need, no need to justify sin. No need to. To, to rationalize sin away. It's already been taken away. A heart that has been brought to life by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, repents of sin and understands we're justified, not by the things we say, but by Christ alone. And the point here is not that I would expect any of us to be living in perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments. All of us, just reading half of them, we all realize, even if we're not making excuses 
for our sin. We're all realizing we've got to continue to kill the sin that's in our lives. Those of us who claim the name of Christ should be striving for the holiness, as Hebrews 12 says, striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we strive to obey God, not so that we can be made right with God. Christ has already done that for us. We strive for obedience because we've been made right with God through Christ. Our obedience flows out of his love for us and our respondent love to him. And when that's the case, when that's the case, we're going to be far less prone to build up these defenses and make excuses for disobedience. All that to say, if you have found yourself this morning prone to the way of the Pharisees, know this. Your attempts at obedience to God aren't flowing through Christ. You're trying to be righteous on your own. And because you can't, you're making excuses. It's what we do. So, so do this. First, trust in Christ. Let your righteousness be that of your Savior. He came to reconcile you to God through his perfect obedience. Trust in him. Trust what he's accomplished for you. And from your love for him will come your obedience. That is the way of Christ. That's what Christ is teaching his disciples.